So welcome to the remote series, and this is a series that I and Matt Mashari are hosting. I'm Alex McCaw, I'm CEO of a company called Clearbit, and we are hosting this series because right now we are all silently freaking out. Right? Every company is now 100% remote. You have CEOs who are running maybe completely in-person companies or maybe hybrid companies. And now suddenly we're all 100% remote. And CEOs aren't usually the best at asking for help. So what we want to do is, is put together a video series uh, interviewing the best of the best at remote work. The people that have been doing it for a long time, the people that understand how it really works, and to try and get some insights to bring that back to our own companies. And I'm wondering if, uh, Matt, you could introduce yourself, and then Wade, you could introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm Matt Mashari. I coach um, CEOs of large tech companies, as well as uh, heads of uh, large tech investment firms. And um, I've written a book along with Alex called The Great CEO Within, which was try to memorialize best practices for running a company pre-COVID, um, but now that it's post-COVID and uh, or in COVID and we're all remote, what this is meant to do is take those procedures and further refine them for the remote-only world. Awesome. And Wade. I'm Wade. Uh, I'm a co-founder CEO at Zapier. Uh, Zapier helps you connect all the tools that you might be using at work, including Clearbit, but also things like G Suite, Trello, Salesforce, QuickBooks, Slack, Dropbox, you name it. We connect to over 2,000 different things. You can automate to your heart's content all these different tools. Uh, we've been a fully distributed company from day one, over 300 people all over the globe, uh, just trying to make automation a little easier for everyone. Awesome. So uh, Zapier has been remote since its inception in 2011 when it went through YC. The company now has over 300 employees. So Zapier's CEO, Wade Foster, knows a thing or two about how to run an all-remote company effectively. Therefore, welcome, Wade. Thanks for joining us today. Wade, the entire world has suddenly gone remote, and many CEOs are feeling lost in how to run their companies effectively. You've created this great guide, The Ultimate Guide to Remote Work, which we've linked below, uh, which is a wiki for best practices. But it's, there's a lot of info there, and it takes a long time to go through it fully. So, Wade, would you be willing to, right off the bat, share with us what are the three most important things from that list that are the, also the least obvious to do? The first one I would, I would cite is how you define values in your culture is really important. A lot of companies do this. So a lot of companies define values. That's not the sort of like, uh, you know, unexpected part of it. But I think the way that you bake them into how the company runs is a perhaps unique so when we set out, probably about 10 people and started to think about scaling, one of the things we asked ourselves is, what makes somebody successful at Zapier, period? And certainly implied in that is they got to work remotely. Like, how do they work inside of an organization that doesn't have an office? But it was more broad about just how are they successful at a company like ours? Came from a whole list of stuff, traits, competencies, what have you, that are very, pretty generic. You know, we weren't trying to say, like, this is what makes a good engineer. We were just trying to say... What makes someone good at this company? Uh, so they were meant to be somewhat, you know, across role, in, like agnostic of role. And there's a big long list and we sort of narrowed it down to roughly five things that were fairly opinionated. It's, you know, there, it would, it would be reasonable to take the opposing stance. 
So for example, you know, one of ours is default to action. We felt like that was really important in a remote organization because you don't have somebody who is sitting next to you, can see that you're stuck. And so it was really important for us to have folks who are self-starters, independently curious, and willing to dive in and just like go solve a problem. Now, it's possible that you could take the opposite viewpoint of that. I think if you look at a company like Apple, for example, they have a culture that's very much oriented more towards perfection. Like they really want things to be done very well and very high quality. I think they would look at a default to action thing and say, whoa, that's that's a little too chaotic. We're going to ship, you know, products that are flawed in some way because of that and be very successful versus you counter with, say, like Amazon, which I think is done is maybe more oriented our direction. So it's the values have that sort of stance that it's like you could say the other way and probably still create a good company. Um, and so we enumerated five of those. But then the key thing that I think we did is we baked it into the interview process. So as part of the hiring, we have um, questions that try and assess, do people like have these skill sets? Do they have these competencies? Do they share these values with us? And then we baked it into the performance reviews of the company. So every six months you get reviewed against these things. Now, that is a really great start. But then what started to happen is it became more than just that. Like over time, it became a thing that not just me, I was articulating saying why these were important, but it became things that others in the company cared a lot about and would also start to call me out on certain things. Like we have one that's default to transparency. And if they felt like I wasn't being transparent, you can bet I hear about it. If they feel like I'm you know, not doing, taking feedback well, I hear about it. So like that, I think is when the values really become critical. And I think in a remote organization, it's hard to develop those things if you don't approach it with intentionality. You sort of just become, you know, uh, you know, this, this odd collection of just individuals doing random assignments and work. And it, you really don't want that. In a company, you want people to feel like they're on a shared sense of purpose, shared sense of mission, shared sense of alignment. And the values for me have been one thing that have been really important in creating that. Can you give us some examples of how you uh, actually interview someone for being a self-starter? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, a great question is, hey, tell me about a time when you spotted a problem at your last job. And what did you do about it? So you can hear and tell me about a time is really just a great variant of a question. You can apply this to almost any type of thing you're trying to evaluate against. Uh, a sort of poor answer might be, hey, well, I spotted this bug and I escalated it to the proper channels. And, you know, that was that. You know, it's that's sort of like the bare minimum amount of work you can put in. It's not bad that you did that. It's just you really didn't do much beyond you didn't try and solve it in any sort of way uh versus like maybe a good answer would be like well i spotted this bug i wrote a quick fix and like committed that to the repo or something like that and informed the team that they should take a look at it that's better another one might be like well i spotted the bug i realized that it was impacting other it was like prevalent in other parts of the code base and so i created a module that can replace all these different things that's even better like even then like you could go even further and say like I not only did that but then I created like I wrote up a, a thing and sh did a like talk with all the engineers to help them understand like how to deal with this type of situation so you can sort of see like escalating degrees of 
um, someone like taking ownership of a problem there. And so those are the types of things that you're just trying to get that nuances. Like when you look at these situations, how far does a person go? How far do they try and push it? Um, and, and when they sort of uncover a thing that seems worth working on. I mean, that makes total sense. Um, we, we actually have the same company value, uh, which is being a self-starter. And I think it's particularly important in remote environments, waiting for permission. Uh, you'll probably wait quite a while in a remote environment. Um, so I, th I think that is, that's one value that lends itself pretty well to it. When you say um, people uh, call you out, so this is something that um, I'm interested in because I found it very difficult to elicit feedback uh, from the rest of the company. And, uh, and we, have, so we have a feedback-driven culture. We try to have bi-directional feedback at Clearbit. Um, what we found is that although managers are, are fairly good at giving feedback to their reports, we don't get many situations where the reports are comfortable giving it to the, feedback, uh, to the manager. And I have maybe three or four people at the company that are willing to like, sit me down and give me brutal, raw feedback. Um, but it's few and far between, and as the company's grown, it's become fewer, fewer and fewer people. And we found like one of the one of the ways that we've actually managed to elicit this feedback and get people to call you out is via anonymous feedback. And I'm wondering if what your, your what your feedback system is, and if you have anything similar. Yeah. So we have one of our values is growth through feedback, and so it's baked into the values. So we uh, that's an important part of it, and so. When you join Zapier, we have a whole onboarding program, but one of them is we teach a course on how to get feedback. And I actually am the one that teach the course. So, you know, every two weeks, I do an hour long session, run through people the basics of feedback. And I think that sets a really good foundation for folks that shows, hey, I care a lot about this, so much so that I'm the one that's teaching this course in a company of 300 people. And it shows right away you can give feedback to me, and if you can give feedback to me, you should be willing to give feedback to anyone. Now, that doesn't make it easy. Um, and in fact, you know, I still have the same problems that you have. That there's not many people in the company that will give me unabashed raw feedback, you know, brutally. But it has gotten better when, once I started doing that. And then you also, we've also implemented just other opportunities for folks to share. So, you know, we have the employee reviews that are uh, the employee survey that goes out, employee engagement survey that we use with CultureAmp goes out twice a, a year. We do 360 feedback um, twice a year. Uh, so we have these different programs that sort of try and elicit it on a more regular basis. But really, we're trying to get to where it's like in the moment, people are just really comfortable giving that style of feedback. Now, that that works for most roles, the CEO role, it's still tough. Like it's just uncomfortable for folks to give feedback to the CEO because ultimately, you know, their view of you is that you hold their fate in their hands and they don't really want to jeopardize that. And that's a, I can understand that. I understand that fear. And so I do a few things. One is I just trying to diminish the fear every chance I get. So if someone gives me feedback, my first reaction is thank you. And I don't say, I, I don't try and you know, debate them or convince them that they're wrong or anything like that. It's just thank you out the get-go. The other thing that I think I try and do is to get better feedback is I usually try not to ask feedback for my performance. How do you think I'm doing on the job? No one has feedback about that. They don't understand my job. They don't really want to talk about it in that way. But you can ask for other types of feedback on things that have happened in the company where you know 
like, hey, I play a big role in this. So you can look at things and say, hey, how could we have done 2x better on this project? How could we make our culture two times more effective? How can we do things like that? And all of a sudden, the feedback gets very specific and very, you know, and it's not saying, oh, Wade, that's your fault that this is the way that it is. But you know that it is because who else would own that stuff? Like, of course, it's your fault that those things aren't working as well as it is. So if you sort of ask questions in a more indirect way, you tend to get, I think, the more the feedback that's a little more rich that you're looking for. And I love that. That's so smart. You know, one of the things that we do at Clearbit is at our leadership offsites, we do, I guess, 180 feedback where every executive gives feedback to every other executive. And we write it down in the Google Doc, and it's pretty. It's pretty raw. It's. I mean, that's kind of the deal if you're on the exec team. And then what we do is we publish that document to the rest of the company, and um, and I, especially I will publish all the critical feedback that people give me, and then I and then I can really demonstrate. Hey, actually, I view this as a gift, and this is an important part of learning. So, I think feedback is definitely an important part of the of making remote work. Um, and also having like a set feedback time. I don't know if you have um, a scheduled time for doing feedback, like a regular routine every week, maybe every one-on-one, but we found that pretty helpful as well. Mm, Yeah, I love the, uh, I love the, the, the publishing, the transparency around yours. I think that's, that's kind of stuff goes a long way to show, just demonstrate that like, hey, I'm open to this. And I think one of the beautiful things about feedback Feedback's about the future. It's about helping you be successful. It's about helping you win. And so the best thing that you can do for yourself, whether you're a CEO or not, is show that you're a person who likes to get feedback and is good at getting feedback. Because if you can show that and prove that to others, all of a sudden they become way more likely to give it to you. Uh, I noticed this myself, like with the people that I work with day to day, the ones who take feedback really well I'm just better at get like I can walk in, I can give it to them. I don't have to worry about their feelings as much. I can just say like, hey, this is a thing that you need to work on and, you know, let's work on it together. And it's just a very sort of matter of fact thing. And those people tend to grow very quickly because they get more of it from me. And it's not because like I want to give them more feedback than other people. I'd love to give it to others in the same way. It just they've just done such a good job of making it easy for me. Versus others where I know and I'm like, oh man, I have some feedback for them, but I got to think about how to deliver it. And I got to think about how they're going to take this. It's just easier for me to sometimes forget to actually do that work. It's like, oh, I have to, I have to digest this. I've come in with the perfect language. Um, and so they get less feedback. And so I think one of the most important things you can do as a CEO is just demonstrate like, hey, lay it on me. I want to hear it all. I want to hear the good. I want to hear the bad. And I'm going to work on it. So that makes total sense. So to move over, there's one of the biggest problems I've found with remote work is the loneliness problem. And you probably have encountered this. I think it's a very, um, it's part of the human condition, loneliness. But some people love offices and some people do not. And I think the people that do not either get their human interactions through other means, their family, going outside, their friends, or maybe they just need less human interactions. So they're more introverted. And then the people that go to the office get energy from other people. And I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier when you said like, the key thing to remote is hiring people who are uh, good at remote, who want to do remote. But uh, 
most of the world now is in the situation where we, we have a bunch of the company who never wanted to be remote, uh, who now is. And I'm wondering if you have any insights into how you solve this loneliness problem, how you get people interacting. Uh, Camaraderie to me is the opposite of loneliness a little bit. Like you're still, look, at the end of the day, humans were meant to be together. We were meant to have community. We were meant to eat and break bread together. Like that's just in our DNA. And so it's a weird thing to take away the thing that provided that for so many folks. The office whether we intended it to or not, is the thing that gives that to so many, so much of society. And so with it gone, we have to really figure out how to do that in other ways. Now, a big part of it for us is we, one, try and just state that honestly, as folks come into the company before, through the interview process, and when they're onboarding, we say, hey, you're gonna need to figure out how to get that human bond outside of work to a degree, whether that's, for some folks, it comes easy. You have a family, and so all of a sudden, it's just sort of baked in there. Others already have like clubs or you know religious groups or um, nonprofits or volunteers or sports activities that they involve in with their community, so they're already getting in other ways. But even still, work is 40 hours a week. That's a big chunk of the week that you still need to fill, try and provide a little bit of this. We've gotten a lot better at it over time. I think the thing that we've, that sort of made us, we got to a stage where we were big enough that we were hiring more regularly and we started to figure out we can create community and cohorts as part of the onboarding process. And so now we start folks every two weeks on a Monday. So you start with a group of people and the first two weeks on the job, really week and a half, you're not doing your regular job. You're actually there to onboard together. And so it just starts with, Here's three or four people that you have a shared interest in and that you started at the same company at the same time and you're going through the same set of stuff together. So you already have people that you know. So that creates a group of folks that you have a sense of community with that's not your manager. You know, you're going to have to build that with your manager, but your manager is your manager. It's not really like, hey, these are just like people that I can hang out and just be myself a little bit more. You want that with your manager, but it still is just hard to totally get there all the time. So that's one thing we started with. Then we start, we've layered in other things that help people find a bit of a, a tribe a little bit. So uh, inside of Slack, we have these off-topic non-work channels that are all for whatever interest you might have. So we have things like, you know, fun sports, fun movies, all the way to more esoteric stuff like fun gardening, fun knitting, fun uh, ham radio. So it's just like these things that folks are into and we talk about those as part of the onboarding. It's like, hey, just, it's, you know, you can go hang out in these channels. It's fine to spend some of your work time hanging out in there. Um, you know, they don't get abused. Generally, people are not spending 40 hours a week just doing non-work stuff because they're just hanging out talking sports all the time. But it's usually a nice way to just get to know another set of people. Then we also do this, uh, this pair uh, donut thing, which is a donut.ai, this bot that matches people up into Slack every week. And so you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So you have these little things that we've just layered in, all of which are meant to keep focus, focusing people on building those connections, building those tribes, building a sense of togetherness. And then all the managers are sort of taught how to do this with their teams too. So you build a sense of cohesion with the core people you work with regularly. All of this, all this said, 
it doesn't solve it 100%. It makes things a lot better. And in fact, there are people inside the company who would cite, hey, I feel a sense of belonging at Zapier. I feel a sense of, you know, friendship, kinship with my teammates that I didn't feel when I worked in the office. That happens regularly. But there are still people who, you know, not a lot. I would say maybe one, uh, probably one to maybe eh, probably more than 1%. Maybe two or three percent of total people who've ever been hired in the company have left because they're like, I just can't do it. Like, I just can't. I want to I need to be around people. So it does happen that um, people can't make it through it. But I'd say more folks have it in them to be successful at this. If you do a good job of nurturing it, then then not. Got it. So to reiterate, there's a kind of personal responsibility aspects of it. And you um, you kind of drill that into them during the onboarding and then. You also set them up with a cohort of people. And then lastly, uh, you have all these events. I'm wondering, do you have any uh, like Slack, uh, sorry, Zoom events or like do you have yoga or meditation? Uh, or yeah, we have stuff like that that's been self-organized at this point in time. Um, like the company doesn't actually really do much to sort of organize that. That's all very like, that's the default action, self-organization of the company kicking in where uh, there's like a Zapier social calendar now. <laughs> Where he's, which um, has been more active during COVID, where people are like, hey, let's watch a movie at night sort of thing, which, um, cool, like, go for it, right? Uh, I, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. Or, hey, let's, you know, do some meditation together. Uh, or let's um, do like a, a, a talent show with our kids um, who are not at school right now. Um, so like that kind of stuff is happening. Um, which I think is great. Like it just sort of shows that at a certain point, if you get this stuff right, the culture takes over. Like the, the people in the company take over and just start to like expand it and build on it in ways that probably you never would have anticipated or thought to do. That's really interesting. And Matt, I know you've thought a bit about this problem. I'm wondering if you have any 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 ideas? Uh, well, I do, and I would would love to hear Wade how the, how you react to these. And this sort of goes to um, you know the whole company, but then you can also zoom in on smaller groups, like the exec team is sort of a core group that people think about. And it seems to me that camaraderie is built and community is built by two things: by um, physically seeing people and working, you know, sensing them as humans, um, but also uh, sort of doing work projects together, and then also knowing things about them personally. And so what, what I found is, and, and letting people know that you know things about them personally. So sharing personal information as a group, like I'm just, every employee is going to share the name of their spouse, the name of their kids, the name of their pet, things they like to do for fun, things where they grew up, um, you know, ask me about blank because I love to talk about it. Okay. And then with that information, uh, people can have when they do get together, they can spend one or two minutes before their meeting saying, hey, can you please let me know about how your wife, you know, Susie's doing or how your husband John is doing? And it's just a way of, in the one-on-one anyway, of letting people know, oh gosh, this person actually cares about me as a human. Um, and then what I've also found is that you can also, you don't even have to let that be um, a verbal interaction over Zoom. It can actually be a text. Say, hey, you know, I, uh, I saw this article on tennis and I remembered that you enjoy tennis. So I just, it reminded me of you. Done. Takes about 30 seconds. And then the person on the receiving end goes, wow, that, that, that person remembered that I like tennis. I feel so complimented. 
And so it can be very sort of not only effective method, but time effective method. And especially for a CEO who really is, everyone wants to have a, a personal relationship with the CEO. But for you to do that in a one-on-one or in an in-person manner, it, even if there were in-person were an option, it would just be tremendously time ineffective. And this is a way to actually reach out to people and let them know that you actually care about them in a very time efficient way. 100% agree. We've done this at Zapier in a few ways. One of the earliest ways, we did this thing called Friday Updates, which is every Friday, everyone in the company publishes what they had going on this week. And it sort of evolved over time, but the core of it now is, hey, this was my top priority this week, and this is how far I got on it, and this is my top priority next week, and here's what I plan to do on that. But at the end of it, uh, very early on, someone added a section called Unplugged, and it was, here's what's happening with me outside of work. And people would share stories from the weekend, pictures of them hanging out at with their friends, with their families, with their dogs, all this sort of stuff. And it was it's kind of an interesting component of those because there's a sect of folks in the company who are like, oh, Frank Friday updates, this is such a, it's like the TPS report of Zapier, right? Where it's like, ah, who wants to do this? I think it's a really valuable thing to self-reflect and like report on your progress. But there are those who would disagree with me. And the unplug section is the thing that keeps people coming back where they're like, I love this because it's the time where I get to see other folks. And yeah, I do get to hear out like the important work stuff. You know, I, that's, that's good and all like, and of course we need to, you know, take care of our customers and, you know, solve the mission and whatnot. But how was Harry Potter world? Like, I really got to know. <laughs> uh, and so like, I do think those just little bits about each other help you build a relationship and the cool thing about it, and I think this is why folks do cite I know people better, is that in a remote company, you have to find ways to get good at this stuff. And in an office, you don't necessarily. So you can certainly get to know one or two people in an office really well, the folks you sit down and eat lunch with every day or whatever you become really, really close with. But in a remote company, you actually can get to know a lot more people really well because there's so much, a lot of people just wear it out there. They put it out there because it's part of just how you build bonds, um, which is, I think, somewhat unique to, to remote companies. Yeah. I mean, we've started doing side hustles, which I think is kind of similar where people will do a presentation on maybe some Burning Man art car they made or some LED light project they have. Um, you know, we had some lady that really loved going to Comic-Con and dressing up. And uh, so, so she did a presentation about how she did all the costumes. So we have that. Um, we have a events calendar. It's not as quite like yours. It's not user generated and I would love it if we got to that point, but, uh, it's, it's run by a head of HR and uh, Bri uh, Brianna, that's basically her main job right now is these, uh, these events and bringing people together. Uh, we've got yoga, we've got, uh, breath work, meditation. People love that. Um, and then I'll, I'll give you one more idea. So. Uh, we, we had a leadership dinner last night and usually for our leadership dinners, we go to a restaurant in San Francisco and you know, these are time for bonding. We don't talk too much about work, but they are like really important for us to bond together. Obviously not possible right now. So what we did was um, our CRO has a incredible like pancetta recipe. And so what he he sent it out to everyone. And we brought all the ingredients and he showed us how to make it together. And it was like this, uh, you know, th this bonding experience that 
replicated a bit of what we had earlier. So there's a few more ideas there. That's great. I love it. I think, I think this, like, (laughs) it's, it's almost like, um, everyone in a remote company has to get good at like, like a boring Instagram feed. It's like, just like share yourself a little, just get comfortable sharing little bits about yourself. And it doesn't have to be flashy or glamorous. In fact, just sharing the mundane things helps you feel more connected to people than anything. Honestly, just knowing that like, ah, yeah, I'm dealing with kids at home again too. And it's hard. Like, do you have any suggestions for that? Here's like the horrible art project we tried to do this morning. Um, like that's the sort of, like, I think it's the realness of it is endearing. And it's just that it realized like, Hey, we're all part of this sort of shared human experience. And, you know, it just makes work feel, I think a little more, I don't know, real. And how many times do you all get together, Wade? Well, pre-COVID, we did uh, two times a year, we would do the uh, big retreats where we'd get everyone in, uh, in the same place. And then we would often do um, a smaller get together for like functions. So like marketing would all get together, or support would all get together. So, you know, two to three times a year um, would sort of be the norm. And what about uh, virtually over Zoom? Do you do a weekly all hands? We do a weekly all hands, yeah. So every Thursday, there's an all hands. We rotate for, you know, morning PST and afternoon PST so we can get, you know, different time zones of the world um, covered. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's a chance to sort of just see everyone together and show off some of the good work and have an AMA and all that other stuff. So you do a AMA every time. You know, I was asking out on Twitter for recommendations about what all hands should look like. And... Um... Ryan from Flexport was saying it should be kind of like Saturday Night Live. Just, I totally um, agree. It's uh, like a, it's like an evening news show. Like a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like funny, a little informative. Um, and like before, before I was basically like showing here's a like P and L this 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 quarter and like let me dig into these charts for you. And now I'm trying to like bring it up and, and make it a little, a little bit more entertaining. Yeah, we've been trying to get so we've been doing. Uh, during COVID, we've been doing weekly financial updates to help people feel a little bit more comfortable about like the, the trajectory of the company. And uh, one of our, our um, guys that runs finance for us uh, has such a good chart that he shows. And we keep telling him, you need to make it your Zoom background so that you can pretend like you're the weatherman where you can see it. And up over here, you know, things are, are trending up and to the right, which is really nice. Uh, down here, you can see we've got a bit of a cool front coming in. We're going to have to work on this a little bit. Um, so it does end up feeling a little, in my mind, it's like a little bit like a local news, like community show that's a little more optimistic and upbeat and stuff. But it has that flair of just, you know, not heavily produced, amateur sort of presenting it. But it's more, it's better than amateurs, but not quite the real deal sort of thing. And so it just, I don't know. It makes it yeah. fun it's and daring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to take this in sort of a radically different direction now from the lighthearted to sort of the, the, the slightly traumatic. And, and that is, is that um, I want to get your reaction to what Ian at Mattermost has been sort of um, evangelizing lately. And he's been sort of ringing this very loud warning bell to anyone who'll listen. And he basically says there are three modes of work. There's all in person, there's all in all remote, and then there's hybrid, which is, you know, some in person and some remote. And of course, now everybody's remote, but most companies are thinking, okay, we're going to hybrid when we return. 
And Ian Warren's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. That's actually the least functional of the three because it causes a split culture of insiders who are in person, outsiders who are remote. And it comes both from reality and perception. Reality is when people are in person, they get a little lazy about how they communicate. They don't write everything down. They don't include everybody that needs to know. And so the only people that get the knowledge are the people who happen to be there in person in the verbal conversation. And then the perception is, from those who are remote, is that this in-person communication is going on all the time and intentionally, likely far more than it really is. And then, so the result is that people who are remote get resentful. And so it, that then creates this polarized uh, community or culture, which just sort of makes everything in the company work less effectively and efficiently. Do you agree with Ian's assessment? Because it's pretty radical. I mean, he's basically saying you should either be all in person or be all remote, but definitely don't do hybrid. And it's a pretty radical thing to say. I mean, there's a lot of hybrid companies out there that seem to do to make it work. Um, but I do think that it is probably a level of difficulty above, you know, all being in an office or all being remote. Um, and I think there are things that are even more insidious, like li a little more like insidious than even the stuff you're talking about. For example, um, you know, if you have your leadership team all in person and then, you know, maybe some other folks, but then, you know, everyone else is remote. Well, do you accidentally promote folks who are in the office more than you do folks elsewhere? And like, are you stunting career growth opportunity? And like, you know, do you have bias in that direction? Um, so like, I think there's things like that, that you have to wrestle with if you're going to run a hybrid company. I think you can, there, uh, there's so many companies that are doing it and they're very successful companies. So clearly it can be done. Um, but I think it requires a level of discipline that's even above and beyond what you see in a full remote company uh, to manage those sort of things that can happen on accident. It's not like you, you called it out where like the remote folks might think that these conversations are happening to exclude them. That's not what's happening. They're just happening because that was easy. It's laziness. It's not, it's not maliciousness. It just happens because people gravitate to things that are easy. And so they get excluded on accident, not on purpose. And so I do think that there's some truth to what he's saying and so I think it's just one of those things that you have to you have to think through and you have to decide, is that what we want to go down? There might be real good reasons why you would want to have this hybrid setup. Maybe there's maybe you have like a really good recruiting powerhouse in a particular region and you want to be able to exploit that, but you want to augment it with remote folks. And so maybe the hybrid thing makes sense for the situation you're in. But it's one of those things that I just wouldn't go into lightly. Um, you know, I think the like, oh, let's just do hybrid because it seems like the best of both worlds. I'm like, well, maybe think about it a little more than that. Yeah, I, I concur. Like as a company that has gone from hybrid to completely remote, um, Ian's right about the fact that there is like two groups and one group feels a little left out and a little less communicated with. And it's a problem. I'm not sure we ever solved it very well, honestly. I don't think remote at Clearbit was quite the same experience as being in the office. What I'm hoping now, though, is that we will keep some of the good habits that we've built up during this remote period. You know, we're probably going to be a remote for another oh, six months, at least. And uh, that that is enough time to really ingrain these habits into people's minds. Yeah. I think it could be, but I think if you, the moment you get back in the office, I think it might, you know, 
It'll last for a little bit. There will be a honeymoon effect. But over time, I suspect that some of that stuff would go away. So I would be curious to see what happens for you. Like I've seen folks talk about, well, maybe we do a weekend and a week out of the office or some stuff like that. So I do think there's some I do think there's some like just little behavioral things that you can probably try and do to make sure to even the playing field a little bit while still getting benefits of being in person. Um more frequently uh it's yeah it's not a like i said you can make it work there's companies that make it work i just think you gotta a lot of people just sort of think it magically happens just like they think well if we're all in an office the culture will be great because we're all here hanging out and it's like well that doesn't work out like you just sort of get an accidental culture at that that way do you have any ways of of measuring how effective you are at remote like do you have any kpis around it so we do the employee engagement survey twice a year, and we sort of have a set of standard questions that we ask um, that try and get at certain things like this. Um, how satisfied are you with your job, of course? How likely would you be to refer someone to work here, of course? But also things like, you know, how well do you identify with the mission of the company? How well do you feel like you're connected to your fellow teammates? Um, and so we start to ask those types of questions and just track them over time and start to see what the trend line looks like. I don't know that we don't really compare ourselves to other companies on these metrics all that often um, outside of like the EMPS score around, would you refer somewhere? I think that's the one that a lot of companies ask. And so you can start to try and compare. Mostly we just try and compare ourselves to ourselves. Like six months ago, how did we feel? How do we feel now? Is it better? Great. If it's not, what happened? Like, should, should we try and figure that stuff out? And so we just use those as just a way to do a temperature check and feel like, are we... Are we making the progress we need to be making? And so I'm going to grab the mic back for a second. Um, and to, to, you know, I'm always going to ask questions that guide us into more and more trauma. Um, and so to, to walk us along that pathway, another thing that, that I'm hearing from CEOs are feeling real fear around is that um, if they do make this decision to go all remote, just as Alex pointed out, there are a bunch of people in the company that were not hired for that. And so they don't want to be remote and they likely won't succeed in remote and then they will likely leave. And that's a traumatic thing because, you know, your experience was two to three percent leave. But those are the people that you were filtering for who would be successful in remote. Now, now this other group, who knows, it could be 30, 40, 50 percent. And that is just this hugely harrowing idea, this sort of sword of Damocles hanging over CEO's head when they make this decision, if they're going to make it to go all remote. Um, is this a real issue or is this something we, we don't know for sure, but what's your sense is that it's, it's something that people just need to bite the bullet, make a declaration of one way or the other, because obviously if X percent leave, they'll need, you know, you need to rehire, but then you can rehire for remote. So it's a one time trauma and it's not, it's not an ongoing thing. Sure. Uh, you know, I think it's it, it does exist. Um, I think it would be foolishness to not think that, hey, to, to just say, think, oh, everyone's going to love not being in the office. That's not true, because we all know somebody that would prefer to be in the office. Um, we have run some surveys on, on this stuff. So we've worked with um, Harris Group to like run some of these types of things. And um, what we see, I forget the exact number, but I want to say that like three and four folks would prefer working remotely, at least some of the time, and would want to have that be a regular part of their 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 life. So I do think that the majority of your workforce is probably going to be happy about this transition. 
But that's not to say that you don't have critical members of your team in that minority who are just going to not like the way that this moves. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch, um, you know, like in certainly on the West Coast here and, and in California, we're being very cautious about how we return to work. Um, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And then when we do get back in the workforce, it's not going to be the same office experience that folks have come to love. You know, we're talking about, hey, you have to sit at the lunchroom table by yourself. Like there, you can't be near someone. You have to sit catty corner at desks. You can't have anyone around you. Like there's all these restraints that we're putting up in our offices, or at least the plans that I'm seeing, I'm like, yeah, you might want to go back to the office, but if you think it's going to be the office that you left, it's not going to be. It's not going to look like that. And so that's going to be, that I think is really going to be what becomes interesting. you got all these folks that love this thing, but I don't know that the option is going to be to go back to that thing. I think the option is going to be remote or this weird, sterile like hospital-like environment that the workforce is going to look like, at least for however long it takes to get a vaccine or to get better texting or whatever it takes to sort of, you know, make us feel comfortable being close to each other again. Right. Agreed. And a lot of people just moving out of San Francisco full stop. Well, that's a huge part of it too. I think, you know, when, when I have some of the stories I've heard from folks in the Bay Area is they don't like working from home, but when you talk to them about it, it's, I don't have any space. My kids are running around. I don't have all this other stuff. Well, you're like, well, you might like it if you lived in Utah and you had a spare bedroom or a den or whatever that could be a a dedicated space for you to work from home. And it cost half the price of, you know, what it does here in California. Um, So, like, I think some of the, like, angst about I hate working from home is like, well, I just don't have an environment in which I can do it. Certainly here in the Bay Area, those are hard to come by. Yeah, it's true. And then... Wait, again, going further into trauma that you mentioned, sort of individual people in San Francisco saying, you know, hey, this isn't working for me. I've actually heard this quite a bit from from folks is that, you know, one of my reports is really struggling, but they hesitate to um, go into the whys of it and get into their home environment and ask them, well, what's your setup and what's going on with your your kids and with your spouse? And um, because it feels sort of like "Mm, that's intrusive, that's their personal life. But it seems to me that in this remote environment, it's the whole person that you're dealing with. And you've got to help them solve their problems, whether they're quote unquote work related or whether they're personal. And I've even um, talked to folks who have said, well, these three people had real issues. And so what we did was we offered, Alex, I think you did this. uh, We offered them, you know, rent. We will rent you a place elsewhere so that you can maybe not wherever, Utah, wherever, so that you can have a functional living and working environment because you clearly can't have that in your place where you are right now. And that has worked poof like magic. Have what, what experience have you seen? Um, either of you there, you may have done it more Alex, because you're involved in the transition Wade, You may not have even seen this because your team is already set up for remote. I think you certainly have to like find a way to engage the whole human, uh, like you said, I think that's an important aspect of this. The one thing that I coach a lot of our managers on is though, don't try and solve problems. You're not qualified to solve either. So, you know, if someone has like a medical issue or mental health issue, you're not a therapist, you're not a psychologist, you're not licensed for that type of stuff. Certainly good to be an advocate and a supporter of that person. And 
but you should be helping these people connect to folks that really can help you. And so, you know, through our health insurance and things like that, they have access to some of these services. And we try and, you know, go out of our way to showcase these are normal things. Like, it's totally fine to work with a therapist. That's a very reasonable thing that humans do. And you try and take away the stigma from some of that type of stuff. You know, if someone's struggling because their kids are, you know, in the way and underfoot, it's, you know, I'm, I don't have kids. I can't solve that problem. But I can say, hey, I know these other people inside the, the company that are dealing with the same stuff. Maybe you should go have a conversation with them and, and, and sort of sort those things out. So I think you try and help and support and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's really, you got to be careful not to try and get in and be like, my job as a manager is to solve every problem that you possibly have. It's like, no, I hired a competent person. Your job is to come in here and solve the problems that you're good at. I can support, I can push you to resources that might be able to help you with some of those things. Um, but we really want, or at least at Zapier, we really want people to have agency to solve their own problems. I think that makes a more enduring company. That makes sense. Matt, you've got three kids running around. Uh, how do you deal with it? <laughs> I go into my, in the back of the house in my son's bedroom where I am now, and it's quiet back here. There yeah. you go. <laughs> but luckily I have a house big enough that there's a, yeah. there's a back of the house. Right. So maybe now to take it, I'm, I'm Mr. Trauma. Maybe I'll take it up into the, the, the joyful side. Um, Wade, there are some massive advantages of, of being all remote. And right now, um, and there's also some massive advantages in deciding to be all remote permanently in the sense that where are, you, where are you hiring from? Right now, people have sort of been limbo and they're planning to go back to in-person. Their team must be live close to the office. If they make the decision to go all remote, now they can start hiring from the entire world. Um, this sounds really good to, to all hiring managers, but can you just share with us just how good it is? Um, is it worth it? I mean, I think it's worth it. Like we have great people working at this company who come from all sorts of places around the world, places that I didn't even know existed. And some of our best people come from those places. And so to me, that access to a massive talent pool is just so beneficial to our success. Uh, and I also think it's just good for us too in other ways. Like they bring unique perspectives and different ways of looking at problems because they come from different areas. And so I think that's super helpful as well. It will be interesting, I think, to see how the global market evolves because certainly we've had a head start in sort of doing this stuff and getting good at it for a long time. But if remote really becomes what well, I think it will become be, in part because of COVID, I, that maybe that advantage we have might shrink in some ways. And we'll have to lean on the fact that like, well, we were the first to do this. And so maybe we're better in some aspects than, you know, a company like Facebook that's just getting started with this. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's been a big success for us for sure. Fantastic. I'm curious. Do you, do you do geo, um, geo targeted salaries? Like, do you just, so we, this is a hard one. Uh, so, uh, we have geo targeted based on the country that you're in. So we have country specific ranges, um, that apply across the whole country. So our U.S. ranges are static across the U.S., Canada across Canada, but we pay them in local currencies. And so that way they don't have to deal with currency fluctuations. So if, you know, the dollar changes compared to the pound or to, you know, something else to the euro, the other person doesn't have to deal with like, oh, I'm, I'm all of a sudden I'm getting paid a different amount of money. Um, like that's kind of annoying. And so we just set the ranges in the country and we pay them based on in the country that they're in. And are they technically contractors? 
So most of our folks are employees. Um, we set up entities in like our largest um, spots, but you know, certainly in places where we might only have one or two people, they they typically will start out as a contractor. Uh, and it also depends on you know the local laws and regulations and all this sort of stuff. And so if you start to do this at any amount of scale, you're going to need accountants and lawyers and you know people to help navigate all the intricacies of this stuff because it does get complicated from a just paperwork perspective. Yeah. Any last thoughts to sum us up? We're almost out of time. What, what should we it. have asked you that we didn't? <laughs> uh, I mean, you asked a lot of good questions, dug into a lot of really great stuff. Um, you know, I think one thing that is interesting is, um, you know, you all talk about this in the book that you write. I think the operating system of a company is a really important part of how you run. And I do think that digital, like remote companies, which I'm going to call digital first companies, have different ways of going about things, different workflows, the how things happen. And so leaning into some of that stuff will be interesting. I think as folks move from in an office to online, they'll probably try and replicate, here's what we did in the office, let's try and replicate it online. And that's certainly a good starting spot. But there's things over the years that we figured out are like, this is just how you would work if you just started working this way from the get-go. And it doesn't really look anything like what a office situation would look like. It's just something that exists solely because we use these digital tools to, to work for. And it's a wholly new thing in and of itself, um, which I think is another interesting evolution of remote is realizing that there's these new ways of working that really don't actually mirror what we are used to in the, in, in the past. And to me, that's pretty exciting to see those changes happen too. And Wade, where can people find literally the list of what those procedures are? Because that's what people want. They want a, a checklist, like boom, 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 boom. Do you, have, oh, have you published man. that in your in your external wiki? Or is that a book you're going to write? Or A lot of them are in there. We probably don't have them listed like in one post in the way that you're asking for. There might be, um, but there's a lot of good stuff in the, in the wiki, yeah. Right on. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Wade. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wade, this is fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. All right.